I want to ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to a book that we're familiar with around here, the book of Romans, and Romans chapter 5. But before we get there, I, I want to take us back for a moment to the year 1744. Anybody in this room remember that year? <laughs> That'd be a stretch even for me, I think, at 65 years of age. That's, that's a long time ago. But it was a season in England where revival, the outpouring of the Spirit, God's fresh visitation with blessing and joy and many, many, many coming to know Jesus from the royal family all the way down to the poorest of the poor. There's the great as it came to be known, the Wesleyan revival. John and Charles Wesley, two young Church of England preachers, along with George Whitfield, younger than the two of them, but with this incredible voice to be able to speak over literally miles. Uh, Benjamin Franklin estimated that George Whitfield could be heard at the distance of two miles over open water. Uh, you realize that's in the days before electricity and, and uh, microphones and, and uh, speakers and so forth, amplifiers. So that was quite an amazing thing. The Lord had his hand on George Whitfield, the young Anglican preacher, and the Wesley brothers, and the churches just couldn't hold the crowds. And so they would meet out in parks and out in, out in pastures, fields, long riverbanks, Thousands of people would come. Thousands of people would come. And it is said that from a historian standpoint that if there had not been that great revival in England in the 1730s and 40s, that England would have been fallen, the same have fallen, the same fate that befell France when Marie Antoinette and others were put to death at the guillotine as the common people rose up and attempted to overthrow the, the aristocracy, the royal family in France, and they succeeded in doing that. England was just as debauched. England was just as corrupt, except for the revival that came. And there were um, amazing things that happened and great stories, that, but it was uh, even the, the English secular historians would say that that there was a shift, there was a turn that Britain took as a result of that, we would call it, a revival. During the course of that, there were some great songs that were written, great poems that were put to music. The interesting thing is some of those songs, such as Hark the Herald Angels Sing and the one I'm fixing to read you here, were never intended to be Christmas songs. They were revival songs. They were celebrating the birth of the Lord Jesus, not trying to fix a date or a calendar time to it, but they would sing these songs in the fields of England in, in June or July or March or April or October, celebrating that Jesus Christ as a baby was literally the king of the universe lying in a manger, that he had laid aside his deity, he had laid aside his prerogatives as the king of the universe to be born of the Virgin Mary, to grow up as a human child in order for there to be blood to be spilt 
for sins to be forgiven. Without the shedding of blood, there's no covering for sin. There's no remission for sin. So it was necessary. If God was going to rescue the human race, God would have to empty himself, divest himself of all of his divine prerogatives, his invisible qualities, and take upon himself the form of a human. And that's who Jesus was. That's what was going on in Mary's womb at the time she was giving birth. God became a human so that it could be blood poured out, pure blood, spotless blood, no tarnish of sin, no temptation had taken taken root in Jesus of Nazareth when he went to the cross so that he could be the spotless lamb of God. John the baptizer would shout, Behold the Lamb of God, speaking of Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. That was that truth, that gospel truth was received by thousands, tens of thousands in England. It, it, it moved over with the help of George Whitfield um, into the colonies at that time. And so the first and then later the second great awakening happened here in the colonies, later to become the United States of America. But one of the poets, though, of, of the movement was this young preacher, the brother of John, Charles Wesley. He, he just uh, had an amazing way of, of teaching, uh, teaching biblical truths and speaking of the greatness of God in poetic form, and the people would learn to sing the poetry that, that Charles had written. Here, here is one that I want to read to you two verses out of. There's one phrase at the end of the first verse that has just been haunting me, just been sticking in my heart these last couple of weeks as we're coming into Christmas. Here's how it goes. This was written in 1744, and this was a revival song. This was not intended to be necessarily a Christmas song. It begins like this. Come... Thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free, from our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. That phrase, joy, of every longing heart. Those those two words, joy and longing, seem to be mutually exclusive. They seem to be opposites. How can you have joy and yet have a longing in your heart? The word longing, just a simple dictionary definition, a prolonged, unfulfilled desire, 
or need. It's a longing in my heart, a longing in your heart, a prolonged, unfulfilled desire or need. Joy, on the other hand, is defined as the emotion of great happiness or something or someone who provides a source of happiness. Jesus, the joy <laughs> of every longing heart. That just sounds contradictory until you realize that's amazingly how the Lord shows himself to us throughout our lives. The only way that some of you have been able to keep going in the middle of your longing that something be corrected, a longing that some need be met, a longing that something be fixed, the only way you've been able to keep going is that that longing has some way or another caused you to focus on Jesus. And out of a relationship with Jesus, not the theoretical word pictures of who he is, but the literal, actual sense of his presence to you, there has come to be joy in the middle of your longing. Can I get a witness from that? Now, okay. that, that, that somehow, somehow, in seemingly impossible ways, the Lord has the ability by the revelation of his presence to us in the middle of a place of hurt or need or lack or deprivation that somehow joy can rise. Joy rises in our hearts. I want to spend just a little bit of time on that. And, and, and so just I want to give you maybe three or four, three or four longings in the human heart where Jesus has the power and cares enough about you and me to bring joy to our lives. The first one is this, the longing, the longing to be loved, the longing to be wanted, the longing to be desired, the longing to be loved. That's where Romans chapter 5 comes in. Let me start reading in verse 1, and you follow along, and we're headed toward verse 5 in chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith means sins have been forgiven. Our standing before God has been corrected. Instead of open hostility toward him because of choices that we've made that, that would be sin in his sight, we have been forgiven of those things that we did. Not only have we been forgiven, but our record has been cleared. Not only has we been forgiven and our record have been cleared, but we have had imputed to our account, which formerly was chogged full of nothing but violations of the law, we have imputed, credited to our account, 
the absolute righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. So that when God looks at us now through the prism of Jesus, he sees us forgiven, he sees us acquitted, and he sees our standing of righteousness full to the top, full to the brim, because it has been the righteousness of Jesus that has been imputed to our account. Now, I'm not trying to confuse a bunch of folks and, and use a bunch of high-sounding words. I'm just trying to tell you that when you find this matter, this word of justified and justified by faith, and because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you're, you're hooked into the position of being justified. Which means it doesn't matter how sorry you were before Jesus came into your life. It doesn't matter how long you were that sorry. And it doesn't matter how other people were just as sorry as you were who you hung with. Because Jesus Christ has come to live in your heart. Because you are putting your trust in him as the only way you would expect to God for God to let you into heaven when you die. Then you stand in a place of being justified, just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd never, say it with me, just as if I'd never sinned. Now, how do we get there? Paul talks about that in this phrase, by faith. Do you get it by giving money to the church? No. Do you get it by being a really nice guy? No. Do you get it by being a Baptist? No. Get it by being a Catholic? Get it by being a Presbyterian? Add any of the brand names. If that could get you from Bear County to heaven, the cross of Jesus Christ, the death of the only innocent man who ever lived was a total waste. If there was any other way, if there was any other way for sins to be forgiven and heaven to be opened other than by faith in what Jesus and Jesus Christ alone has done for you. Amen. Well, that. We haven't even gotten started yet, and there's just so much to shout about in this first verse. Therefore, having been justified by faith, that's what all of what that means. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. God is not mad at me. God is not angry, upset, ticked off at you. Maybe, maybe there were reasons before when we would shake our fists at him or use his name in vain or, or just do whatever we could to hurt, hurt the cause of God and the people of God. Maybe the Lord would have reason to be mad at us. But because we've chosen to embrace what Jesus did for us on the cross, dying for our sins, receiving God's way for us to be forgiven and right in his sight, there is no more war. There is no more fear of war. There is no concern of retribution. We, we live in peace with our Lord, with our Savior. Verse 3, not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulation. He would say earlier, we exalt in what the Lord has given to us. We rejoice in what the Lord has done for us. But we also exalt and celebrate our tribulation knowing that tribulation, trouble, hassles, brings about perseverance. And perseverance, sticking with it, not giving up, not checking out, perseverance brings about 
proven character. And proven character brings about hope. And hope does not disappoint. Hope in God does not disappoint. Hope in other people may disappoint, but hope in God, in this context, hope in God does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The longing to be loved, satisfied in a wonderful sense, when there comes to be that realization that there is somebody bigger than anybody else on this planet, the creator of all things, the ruler of heaven and earth, the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords loves you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet to the things that are invisible, to the things that are visible. He loves you as you are, as he made you, and as he is going to enable us to become. Now, folks, here's the deal. You can read all day long about the love of God and never feel the love of God. You can read John 3.16, you can memorize it, you can have t-shirts, you can have it on your ceiling. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever will believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But if it hadn't dropped 18 inches out of your head and into your heart, it's virtually doing you no good. That's why Paul will say, it is by the power of of the Holy Spirit, that you and I become convinced that God loves us, convinced that we belong to him, convinced that we have him as our Abba Father, that he wants us, that he's desired us, that he's chosen us. The way he puts it is very clear because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Over the years, in the church settings that Shirley and I have been in and the many that we've known, one of the the profound concerns that so often believers would come and say, but pastor, I believe... I believe if I died today, I'd I'd go to heaven. I'm I'm, I'm trusting Jesus as my Savior. I've done that. But I'm just having a hard time believing that he really loves me. But what they're saying is feeling that he loves me. in, In my brain, I can know that that's a truth. But feeling it. I struggle with that. So sometimes to the point, I don't even really, I'm not even really sure all the time that, that if I did die, I'd go to heaven because there seems to be this sense of absence of being, of feeling loved by God. Folks, there's a reason for that. There's a, there's a cure for that. 
And the reason can be that love never was intended to be a mental word. Love is not an academic word. Love is a heart word. Love is a heart word. Look at what he says. The love of God is shared abroad, not in our brains, not in just our minds, but in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You can't come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord unless the Spirit of Jesus is doing a work in your heart, right? But there is another level of working in our hearts that the Lord by His Spirit desires to do. And that is to make us feel, allow us to feel on the inside of our hearts His love for us. You can, somebody can tell you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. But some way or another, if you don't feel the love in your heart, either from them or back toward them, it's almost like they're just talking to sheetrock with your name on it. And that's what Paul is saying here. The power of the Spirit of the living Jesus, as he fills he also is shedding abroad the felt love of God, convincing you, convincing you, convincing you of the love of God, of God's love, not, not love of God in general, love of God for you. Love of God, the Father's love, the Savior's love, the Spirit's love for you. Now, Turn a page or two and I want to look at Romans chapter 8. And this, this whole chapter just seems to be an exposition of what Paul talks about when he, when, when he speaks of the love of God and what it means to be convinced of the love of God in your heart. Look what he says in chapter 8, verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The love of God has been shed abroad, Paul says, in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. The result of that is that we know in our knower that he loves us. Therefore, we are able to speak to him, not as some unknowable, way off out there, God sitting on the backside of the, some constellation somewhere, but it's in our hearts to feel that we can call him Abba. Abba, Abba. That, that's that, that's the, the biblical language way of expressing the word daddy. A child having it in his heart, having her in her heart, not to call her daddy by their first name, but to call her daddy by the name daddy or papa or abba. We can mimic that because we can say, well, that's what you're supposed to do. But abba is a word that's spoken from a heart that knows it's loved, that knows it's loved. Now, my brother and my sister, you may have been in the church since before you could walk. Your mama may have brought you 
You sat before you were born with her in the pew. The nursery was the first place you, you recognized church. Or you may just be brand new in this. But here's what heaven wants you to know. He doesn't want you just to know the nomenclature or the vocabulary or the definitions. He wants you to experience in your heart that he loves you unshakably, irreversibly, eternally. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And from that place of knowing that he loves you, your relationship with the Father, your relationship with the Lord is not one of slave and master. What's all about fear? It's all about retribution, repercussion if I do something wrong. Or it's all about I'm only worth something to my master if I'm producing something with my life. Some of us have eased our way into Christianity still with the attitude God as master, us as slave. That we're only of use to him when we have our quiet time at the right time, when we do these kinds of things that, that would be God kinds of things, and that we're only of good to him because we produce something. And it violates the whole principle of what the cross is about. <laughs> Jesus had to die on the cross because even our best stuff doesn't have the potency to remove one ounce of our bad stuff. That if we've got any hope of being washed and being clean and being new, it would be because he washed us, drenched us in his blood, cleansed us, and then came to fill us with the living presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You've not received a spirit of slavery, but you've received a spirit of adoption. Folks, you don't adopt somebody that you don't have any concern for or care about. It's a spirit of adoption, meaning that every one of us were picked out because God saw something in us that he desired. We were wanted by him. He was drawn to us even before we ever knew his name or knew how to go to church or knew how to do anything religious or spiritual. He wanted us and he adopted us in the process that Jesus inaugurated in his redeeming us through his blood and being raised to life again, confirming the fact that when he died for our sins, God accepted the sacrifice if Jesus, if you could find genetic material in the tomb, if you, could, if you could find some evidence of bones or evidence of decay, it would be the proof that, that Jesus' death wasn't enough. But oh goodness, the reason there's nobody in the tomb, the reason there's no DNA material, neither nobody there, is because it was full and clear proof that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. He was raised on the basis of our justification because we would be forgiven on the basis of what Jesus did. God raised him from the dead. Now that's, that's another whole story. That's Easter. We're, we're back here at Christmas. <clears throat> but there's not going to be an Easter unless there first has been a Christmas. 
Now, now notice, notice how this, this being convinced of the love of God manifests itself in Paul's writing. Look at verse 31, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, and the word really could be translated since God is for us, since God is for us, who's against us? Who's against us that really counts? Who's against us that really got the muster to make it stick? Who's against us if God's for us? Now, folks, listen. <laughs> the premise is that you have been convinced in your knower that heaven loves you, that God loves you. He cares about you. You matter to him. He desires you. He wants you to know his love, and he wants to manifest his love regularly and often and thoroughly. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Now, Paul is reasoning again. He's reasoning upon the premise that he's loved by God. These things won't make a whole lot of sense to us. They're just, it's just theoretical jargon until you're convinced by the working of the Spirit of Jesus in your life that he loves you. It makes sense then. He who did not spare his own son but delivered up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring an accusation that will stick against God's chosen ones? God's the one who justifies. So what if they bring a charge? So what if they bring an accusation? God is the ultimate judge, and he's already declared you acquitted. He's already cleared your record. So Paul's saying, what good's it going to do if anybody, the devil and everybody, just start leveling charges against your account? God's the one who justifies. Now, folks, again, that's good theory, you know, and it just can, it'll enter our brains. But when you know in your knower, that the love of God for you has been shed abroad in your heart. This makes a lot of sense to you. Bring it, devil. Bring it. Bring it. You're under, you're under his feet. You're under his feet. What my father says is true about me. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Who is the one who has the ability to pass sentence, capital punishment, on the basis of accusations? Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus? Is he who died? So you want to bring some capital punishment at me, do you? Well, somebody has already paid the capital punishment price. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. As Jesus was dying, my sins were being paid for. As Jesus was dying, his blood was washing me clean. Who is the one who condemns Christ Jesus? Is he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Every time you read that, Christ was raised, Christ was raised, Christ was raised, you'd also understand that that means since Christ was raised, it means that we have been forgiven on the basis of his sacrifice for our sins being satisfactory 
before the, the judgment bar of God, as the old Christians would say. Jesus received in his body the punishment for our sins. He, he died, and on the basis of his death for our sins, the law that we violated was satisfied. The wages of sin is death. Jesus took in his body our sins, and he paid the price so that when the enemy comes with accusations, even at this point, wanting to condemn, it's the cross that is our answer. We send the cross to the door. We send the crucified, resurrected Jesus to the door when the enemy starts bringing his empty and his hollow accusations. Hollow in the sense that he can't nail them anywhere. Fresh, because they've already been nailed to the cross. And there will be no double indemnity any longer. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that means hassles, stress. That means 40 chihuahua dogs right at your heels. They won't shut up. They won't let up. They're just there all the time, yapping, yapping, yapping. That's tribulation on the lighter sense. It can be taken to mean things far more serious. Tribulation or distress. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. Now, folks, Paul is using these words as statements expressing more than likely what he had already experienced in his walk with Jesus, in his following the Savior. Oh, this, I, I just want to jump a few cues on this one now. As he's saying, you stack all of these up. You stack tribulation on top of distress and you throw in a big hunk of persecution, and then a great big wad of famine and nakedness and even peril and sword, and all of those added up together have not been able to remove my conviction that God loves me. I have been convinced by the Spirit of God that He loves me, that He wants me, that I matter to Him, that he's on my side, that he'll rise to my defense, that even though things in a temporary situation may seem to be fronted by the devil, my father has never stopped loving me. He continues on, verse 38. For I am convinced. Well, how did he get convinced? Did he sit around talking to himself? The book of Romans hadn't been written yet because Paul hadn't written it. How did he get convinced? The love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit who was given to him. 
The Holy Spirit's work, and who is the Spirit? Now, the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The invisible presence of Jesus is the person of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. And Paul never uses Lord in his writings separate from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's what? There's freedom. There's freedom. So somewhere, somewhere in this going zone, the work of the Spirit in Paul's heart resulted in this conviction, this knowing in his knower, this having been convinced that neither death nor life Neither, neither death or the causes of death or the circumstances of death, nor life, including any and all of its circumstances, nor angels, what they could do, nor principalities, fallen forces of darkness ruling in various levels over the affairs of this world, what they could do, nor things present, nor anything I can see. And he wasn't looking at a whole lot of positive, thank you very much. There's nothing present. Nothing present, nothing I'm looking at, nothing I'm hearing, nothing that I'm remembering, nothing that I'm processing in the present has the power to dissuade me from the conclusion that I know that my Father loves me. Nor angels, nor principal things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us, cut us off from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I want to just say that we've got to finish here sometime before the service tomorrow evening. So I want you to listen. If you struggle, and we all can, we all can, Levels of distress, levels of lack, levels of opposition, levels of threats. It can cause the soul part of us, the, the, the old man, the old woman, before we came to know Jesus part of us, to, to begin to freak out. And, and, we, and, and our emotions can take us into all sorts of other conclusions. When that happens, that's not necessarily the time to start beating yourself up about why you don't have more faith. Or God, I, I mean, you've done so much for me, Lord, I, I don't know why I can't trust you in this. Well, the problem is there's a part of us that's never going to believe God. There's a part of us that will never love him. That's the old man, the old flesh. And the flesh and the spirit are at war against each other. That's why when the flesh rears its head up, connected with circumstances and things and weaknesses in us, that, that is supposed to be the trigger <laughs> to start crying out, Lord, fill me. 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 That you, you can run and you can, you, can, you can go through your verses. Go through your verses. Go through, it's good. That's not a bad thing. But it's got to be more than scriptural truth to set you free. And that which sets you free, or the one who sets us free, 
is the working of the Spirit of the living Jesus, filling us, filling us, bringing us under his control so that our thoughts are connected with the mind of Christ. That, that it, we're, not just, we're not just bouncing around academically, mentally. Lord, I, I ask you to fill me. Fill me in my thoughts. Fill me, Lord, in my emotions. Fill me, Lord, in the place of my memories. Fill me, Lord, in the place of my outlook, my attitude, my reaction, my reflex. Fill me. Fill me. The book of Acts is chogged full of instances of the Lord coming upon by his spirit and filling people for specific assignments and then needing to refill them again. Why? Because they were leaking, you know. They were, they were, they were emptying. They were getting weaker. And if it was true of them, it's true of us. I want to I challenge you and encourage you and just, just beckon you with, with, with great love in my heart, believing that this is true. If you are struggling with whether or not God really loves you, begin to pray. Lord, fill me with your spirit. I need for you to do in me what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. The love of God being shed abroad in my heart by your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. Do you want to do, we got to hold on to this. It was 1,500 years before the first New Testament was printed. For 1,500 years, until the time that Gutenberg invented the printing press for the purpose of publishing the Bible, there were no multiplied copies of Scripture. All the church had was the filling of the Spirit. The Spirit was given before the printed copies of Scripture came about. Now, what that's got to mean is, before I start trying to find my strength, I'm going to say this real carefully, trying to find my strength just in my academic, intellectual, receiving, reading and receiving this right here as I see it here, I've got to understand that the first place I need to get to is what the early church did. Lord, fill me. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. In the place of, of, of lack, in the place of longing, in the place of longing to be loved, Jesus can make his joy known. You may have been dropkicked to the goalposts of life by everybody important that you ever met. And they may add you up and say, great big fat zero is who that one is. But if you know when you know her, something they don't know about you, that even though you're not perfect, even though you're not absolutely brilliant, even though you may not be the, the sharpest knife in the drawer, you know because he has convinced you of it, that you are loved by your Father. And nothing and nobody can ever change that. When, when that. when that settles in, listen, when that settles in, people, people lose their grip on you. 
Somebody who's always been able to rule your life just by a glance or by ignoring or by a word. It's amazing that when the love that you were trying to get them to give you and they didn't, you were able to turn that, Lord, will you fill me? Will you fill Will you cause me to know your love? It's amazing. It's like lights turn on. And you realize, what in the world was I buckling under that kind of pressure for all those years of my life for? There is a God, and he loves me. There is a Jesus, and he's my Savior. He bought me with his blood. And he'll raise me, and he'll take me to be with him when my time comes. I have a I have a I have a place at the Father's table. More than that, I've got a I've got a room in the Father's house. Amen. All right, now that I, I know I know some of you have a hard time believing it. That was point number one. And I got six more. But we can, we'll have to do that later. But now they gotta end with this one. Gotta end with this one. Longing. Longing to be loved can find as its source of joy the person of Jesus, as we were just talking about. But at this season of the year, it just seems like we miss people that have gone on before, that are already in the presence of the Lord. We just seem to miss them more. I look out across this room and in the early service and I can just see husband after husband, wife after wife, child after child, friend after friend. We're still here and they've gone on. So there can be a longing for reunion, a longing to be together again. Is it possible that Jesus could be the joy of even that kind of longing heart? John chapter 11. Mary and Martha had lost their brother, already buried and in the grave. And into that family that Jesus was evidently close to, he knew and loved Lazarus, knew and loved the sisters, he made this awesome statement. And I wonder if he prefaced it by saying, Mary and Martha, look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live again. The certainty, the establishing of the fact that death, physical death, is not final for the child of God. For the one who has died, fallen asleep, believing in Jesus, death, physical death, is not final. But then he also would go on to say in John 
chapter 14, elaborating upon what he had said in Mary and Martha's hearing at the time of the death of their brother. John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. You plural, not you singular. I go to prepare a place for all of you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, (laughs) there you may be also. You know the way where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we we don't know where you're going. How, How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. Just a thing or two about these words. We sometimes have the idea of heaven and our mansion over the hilltop, you know, up there in glory. And some of them are going to build Mediterranean villas. Going to have some uh, Spanish places and then going to have some antebellum homes over here. And we're going to have some penthouses at the top of something back over here. The only problem with those kinds of thoughts is that they just don't fit with the words Jesus used. He never said there are going to be many houses. One house. My father's house. In my father's house, one great big house, there are a lot of rooms, many dwelling places, many places to live. It's as if Jesus is saying the Father wants all of his young ones together. He wants them to be able to be with each other, but he wants them to be close to him as well. In that place where they've all gone and left us temporarily. Words describing that place out of Revelation chapter 21 go this way. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God, the dwelling of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. And Jesus has said, I will come for you. I'm not sending Gabriel. I'm not sending a prophet. When the time comes for you to step out of this physical dimension of your living into your forever form of living, I will come myself for you. So when Jim Henry went to be with the Lord 4 o'clock Friday afternoon, there was somebody else who entered the room from the ceiling. And Barbara and everyone who would have been there, no one necessarily knew that he came, but he came. 
and he took Jim. And right now, Jim is in the presence of the king whose name is Jesus, who's fulfilling all of the things that he promised Jim before he ever got there. And he shall wipe, wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now when it's our turn to go, and we come through that gate, we may have to blink our eyes a few times to recognize the folks who were there. Because if they left here sick, if they left here weak, if they left here wounded, if they left here sad, all that's gone now in the Father's house. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And when Jesus said, when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, already knowing that there were ones on the other side who had already been there, who were already there. But he's saying that because a reunion is planned. The family together again. Going to prepare a place for you. So is it possible for in that place of longing defined by missing someone or someones that the Lord could show joy, the joy in Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus, the joy of every longing heart. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, though she dies, yet shall live again. Live again where? Live again where all those other people who died the same way you're going to die already are, believing in him. And in that place called the Father's house, you won't be a stranger. You won't have to show your social security number. You will be known, even as you are known. And the ones, in addition to the Lord Jesus, whom you look forward to seeing, fit, sharp, young, smart, busy. I don't believe for one New York minute that we're going to sit up there for millennia and play on a harp. Sit around and do whatever spiritual things. I, I, I believe there are assignments. I believe that there's some way the opportunity to co-administer the universe with the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, that we will rule with him and reign with him. He speaks of that together. Together with those who have gone before. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the sense of your presence. Thank you for your truth. And Lord, the, the single prayer, the most important thing that I would 
ask you to bless us with is a fresh filling of your spirit. As we cry out to you, Lord, fill me so that the result can be I don't have to guess or hope that you love me. I will be convinced of that by your spirit working in my heart, convincing me that I have been chosen, that I am wanted, that I am loved, and that love is unshakable and irreversible and forever. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen.